Uh, for all of us, if you would, you can take a Bible out of the pew in front of you or the one that you have with you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Will you do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are on a verse-by-verse study, if you're new with us, a verse-by-verse study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We've labeled that study, God's plan for a healthy church. In particular, as we look at uh, this section, we're in a section on lawsuits and conflict resolution. Very practical book, as we've seen. Uh, It deals with a lot of things that are very relevant to the church today. Um, All the way through so far, we have seen this over and over again. Uh, seems to be just where we need to be at that particular point in the study, and so I, I, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit will continue to do that for us. Uh, we're in, also in the middle of a Be the Church class, which is a great class. Six, we have six individuals coming through the Be the Church class, and I just want to say that to say, if that's something you wanted to do, you were trying to find out about Berean and about our ministry and what we do and why we do it, uh, that class is for you, and you can catch up, and we'd love to have you just uh, let me know after the service that you'd like to be in that class. But we're partway through that class, and so it's been really sweet to talk about some of the things we're talking about today in that class as we think about the one another's and all the stuff that it means to be the church. Now, to preserve our time today, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Uh, Lord willing, we will close out our time in this section Uh, which deals with those things that we just talked about and move on next week, Lord willing, to our next section, which begins in verse 12. But look at verse 1, if you would, and I'll read along, uh, read this with you. You read along with me. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. I'll give you some verse cues so we can stay together if you're reading in another version. It's dealing with the corporate testimony of the church, particularly as it relates to conflict resolution and the secular courts, as you'll see. And if you've been with us, you know. Verse 1, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, Dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? Verse 4. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Verse 6, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Verse 7, actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's stop right there. As you can see, the target audience is a community of Christians in Corinth who have conflict among themselves and attempting to resolve that conflict. They're doing that in secular courts, presided over by non-believers. That's the essence, I think, that Paul is trying to get across to them. It certainly is the part that we've studied so far. And just as a quick review, if you pick up in verse 1, Paul got right to the issue that he wanted them to understand. Just like Paul, he goes straight to it. He wants them to see where they have departed from where the Lord would have them. He wants a healthy church there in Corinth. And so he's going to talk about this right away. Look at verse 1. He says, does any one of you, 
when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, the answer, of course, does any one of you dare, is yes, they are. That's the reason for the, the admonition here. They are going to law before uh, unrighteous and, and not before the saints. They have a conflict. They're taking it to the courts. So with this language, there's no room to misinterpret Paul. Uh, doing this thing is a sin. Right from the start, he says, this is not what you should be doing. And that's the main principle that Paul wants to get across. Uh, the issue isn't initially that there is a matter of disagreement between two believers. That certainly can be the case uh, inside a church, no matter how big it is. There may be a matter of law uh, between two believers, a matter of somebody defrauding someone, someone not paying what they were supposed to pay, someone not fulfilling a contract, something like that, that we talked about a couple of messages ago, and you can catch up with that online. The different types of Roman law available. And also we noted that the Jewish believers would have been able to, to resolve many, much of this stuff on their own. Roman law allowed that for them. It also allowed the Christian church, because they looked at it as a sect of the Jew, were allowed to resolve most of their things right, right up until execution uh, inside their assembly. And so there would be no reason for them uh, to go to law uh, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And so we, we identified probably the reason they were doing it, and we see this later really affirmed to us, is because... Amongst believers, they wouldn't be able to get this big settlement, and yet if they took the law, uh, the difference that they had, uh, the difficulty they had, the conflict between themselves outside the church uh, to unrighteous judges, it would be more likely that they would get the settlement they were looking for, which was an unjust settlement. So that's the issue. Uh, that's the whole point of the passage. Instead of bringing it before other believers in the church, which certainly would have been an option for them, uh, Paul says you're not doing that. You're taking it out in, outside the church. And with that wording, I think it's safe to say that Paul was taken by surprise. He's like, seriously, this is going on. And the question uh, Paul starts with uh, to make his point is, why would you take these cases before unsaved people and not before the saints? I mean, the saints are the ones who know the word of God. The, the saints are, are the ones that have God's principles. The saints are the ones that have the Holy Spirit. They can allow the Spirit of God to lead in the decision. Uh, the saints have uh, some great qualifications. Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So uh, in the future, the saints will, will have the ability to judge the world itself. We looked at a lot of supporting passages to that. Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? And so obviously the issue is, he says that in order to say how much more than the matters of this life, how much more than that you can take care of the things that are here. Now, the church is going to do uh, those things by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the Word of God and the wisdom to apply it. If they're going to judge angels, if they're going to judge the world, then they certainly be, should be able to settle matters down here. That, that could have been their first choice. They could have gone before the saints because the saints were qualified to do it. Now, after pointing out the qualifications of believers, he makes this connection. Look at verse 4, if you will, 1 Corinthians 6. So, if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And the idea here is, as we broke that down uh, word by word, anyone in the church who's a believer is more qualified to render a judgment between two believers in conflict than any judge of a secular court. Because the judges of, secular, of the secular court are of no account, account for nothing in their ability to discern things of the Spirit than those uh, in comparison to those who are in the church. So these issues of court, issues of law, these issues of disagreement, of uh, contention and conflict resolution could all be decided by anyone in the church who's a believer. Now, in those opening statements, Paul says really this. Uh, if it has to be, and I want to make sure we understand this, if it has to be, mark this, if you have to have judgment, because that's not the only option, 
okay? But if you have to have judgment between you, any growing believer in the church is able to handle it better than someone in the world. That's the essence of it, okay? So keep it out of those courts. Now, look at, in verse 5, uh, Paul gave them another reason why they should not be going into law uh, in secular courts over the conflict of the church, and that has everything to do with testimony. So first of all, it's the qualifications of the saints and that they're going to judge the world, they're going to judge angels. Then he says, listen, another reason why you don't need to take it to secular courts is, is it's just shame for you. Look at verse 5. It says, I say this to your shame. And really the essence is this, the fact that I have to speak to this issue is a shame to you. He says the, uh, the pride, uh, the arrogance, and they probably thought that what they were doing was God's will, and uh, they're still seriously deceived. He wants them to understand God's mind on this. And so he says, listen, I say this to your shame. And then Paul lists a couple of reasons uh, why they should feel shame, and he just fires them off very quickly. Look at the last part of verse 5. He says, is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? And Paul kind of says this with an incredulous tent to his voice. You don't have a single person who can judge between two believers. And if that's the case, then you just have an absence of maturity. And I say this to your shame. There's no one there who's able to do this. Then you're not mature enough. And that's a shame to you. And again, we can see that Paul is indicating, along with verses 2 and 3, that the church could be using wise, godly believers to help solve conflict that comes up between two people inside the church. But to the Corinthian church, he says this to their shame. Is it true you don't have anyone who can decide these relatively simple issues in comparison to what you will be deciding in the future? Judging angels, judging the world, you have all these qualifications, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, you're able to discern all these things. He says, is it true that you don't have a single person? And I say this to your shame. Now look at verse 6. But brother goes to, to law with brother. That's the second reason for shame. The fact that you didn't realize this was a sin is a shame to you, he says. You didn't understand the obvious. He can't believe they didn't understand the basics of Christianity, the basics of forgiveness and kindness among believers. And we looked at a number of examples and illustrations from Scripture last week. He won't do that again, and you can catch up with that if you'd like. Now, and then this last reason he says you have shame, you say you do that, you're going brother against to brother to law. He says, I say that to your shame. You, you just have... Uh, uh, you don't understand the obvious. You have a serious lack of understanding. And then he says, and that before unbelievers. So in other words, not only should they feel shame for their lack of maturity, the shame for their lack of understanding of the basics of Christianity, but they should be ashamed because they embarrassed the church and portrayed a bad testimony. They hung all that stuff out on the line so the whole world could see it. And so the church is embarrassed and it's exposed as an apparent fraud. And so Paul says, I say this to your shame. Now we get to verse 7. And it gives us this last reason for not taking believers to secular courts over conflict. Look at verse 7. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. The fact that there is a lawsuit brewing between you is already a defeat for you. And that really is, it is that no matter what happens, whether you win or lose, you've already lost in God's court. And so that's that last reason. Listen, whatever happens... Whether you come away, you know, taking a hammering, whether you come away and you got a big settlement, you already lost when you started the whole thing. And in light of all these reasons why you shouldn't have gone to court in front of the unredeemed, you didn't have to have conflict at all. And Paul says the last part of verse 7, why didn't you just allow yourself to be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? So listen, you didn't have to have this conflict between you, period, okay? You didn't have to pursue the conflict at all. It certainly was an option. You could have taken it to somebody wise inside the church. They could have decided between you. Because anyone inside the church with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God would be better to take these things to than outside to the world. But you didn't even have to have it. 
You could have just accepted the wrong. That's the issue. And here's the thing about that, I think it's Paul's emphasis, that really places the testimony of the believer and the testimony of the church and ultimately the gospel far above our understanding of what's fair and what we think should happen. Those things outrank any of those thoughts of our own. So Paul asked the church, do you want to know how God wants you to resolve the conflict? And then he just answers, just accept the wrong. Why didn't you just accept the wrong? Like it's an obvious choice, one they clearly overlooked. I mean, God's still on his throne. He's going to take care of you. And isn't that just very basic to being a Christian, knowing that God is operating on your behalf? I mean, doesn't that come into your thought as you work your way through your life? Paul says, listen, you don't realize that God's operating on your behalf, that you are important to him, and that the things that are happening to you are important to him? God invests his power, he invests his wisdom on your behalf when you obey. And you may go to the Lord and say, you know, well, what about me? I mean, you know, he took, he took what didn't belong to him. I mean, he, he shafted me. He owes me. And then may the Lord bring to your mind, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. You don't have to worry. God knows what he owes you. God will take care of you. And as I illustrated last week, that's a lesson we've had to learn a number of times as the Lord has chosen fit to see that happen and we just relied on him and he has taken care of us. So Paul says, listen, so instead of going to a secular court with another believer, you can leave it in the Lord's hands, you can have his blessing, and no doubt it was for some in the Corinthian church. It's, an easy, it's easy to get caught up in this world where we're trying to hold on to all the money we can. And no doubt, just like it is today, it was probably like that then, I mean, the money is an attraction. It's a chance to sue. That can be awfully attractive, particularly if we're what we understand to be in the right. We can get damages, and that'll certainly pad our lifestyle a little bit. And so that's very attractive, just like it was then, still attractive now. And so as we get all that then in proportion, last time we looked at uh, a few situations that may require believers to be in court. And I just say that at the end here of this review, and I won't go over them again, but you can check online and catch up with those specific examples of believers when they may have to be in court. But this, and I want you to understand this. The scripture does not say, and I'm not saying, that the Bible forbids believers from ever being in court under any circumstances. Okay, Because there were a number of questions that came in uh, after that first sermon. And I want to make sure that you get this uh, and understand this and kind of work this into this, uh, the fabric of this lesson. Okay, um, There are some times when that may need to happen. Certain criminal issues, uh, divorce issues, things that are our government requires be documented in court, certain abuses that happen that have to go to the police. We understand that. So I'm not saying that there should be no conditions under which uh, the uh, believers should go to court. I'm not saying the Bible says that believers, that forbids believers from ever being in court under any circumstances. But it is certainly clear about motive, and it gives other options. And here is where we see this summed up. Verse 8, uh, look at there if you would, first in motive. Here's where the Bible forbids it, okay, regardless of what the issue is. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. That's the issue where the Bible's pretty clear. If you're going to court to wrong, if you're going to court to defraud, if you're going to court to get more than you deserve, if you're thinking about soaking someone, if you're going to just wring them out, take them to the cleaners, whatever figure of speech you want to use, Paul says, listen, that's wrong, okay? Instead of being willing to take the loss, Paul calls out the prevailing attitude, the prevailing motivation that's going on in the Corinthian church. And here, uh, Paul is dealing with this type of behavior in general. Much like today, you know, so many people go to court to take more than they deserve. Um, Al Sharpton's daughter, I, I read in the newspaper, suing the uh, city of New York because she sprained her ankle and, uh, for five million bucks. That's, exact, that's a perfect illustration. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, in uh, quotation marks, 
uh, with his spiritual guidance to everyone, of course, uh, that he gives out liberally without even being asked. Uh, his daughter is, uh, is taking New York to court for five million bucks. So that's what I'm talking about. And that's really, I mean, that just becomes the example of our society. You go to McDonald's, you spill hot coffee in your lap. You didn't know it was hot. You sue McDonald's for 10 million bucks. I mean, that's it. That's a litigious society. What can I get? How much can I get? for this damage that's been done to me and whatever Paul says, listen, if that's your, if that's your attitude as a believer, right away, you're in the wrong. Okay. You're in the wrong. You're, you're displaying a terrible testimony before the world. And so uh, Paul condemns that. And, and that was what I was referring to in those clarifications before Uh, the Lord's not prohibiting believers from having to be in court against non-believers. He's not prohibiting that at all. Uh, but Paul says, you know, he does prohibit a believer from wronging and defrauding another person in court. Gets a bad testimony, okay? And then Paul says that this greedy, you know, go for the big settlement, really punish someone or a corporation or whatever, is going on among the members of the church too. And that's the last part of verse 8. Look there. You do this, so what? do what? Um, wrong somebody, defraud somebody who's outside the church. You do this even to your brethren, he said. So the attitude is there. Get what you can get. Soak the other person. Get more than you deserve, whatever. And then... You do this to the brethren too, he said. So when you do this, it just shows carnality, selfishness, pride, extreme greediness, materialism. It just makes those things so clear. And really, you're just eroding away your own soul. And if Paul was here, he'd say, you know, in the modern church, he'd just say, I say this to your shame. You're just eroding away yourself and your soul when you do this, because that's not where you're supposed to be. And so the Holy Spirit is carrying Paul along to deal with the church and church health as it relates to its testimony. That's the issue, okay? So he has to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution inside the church. And the study's really practical, it's really relevant, and as we wrap this up, I think you'll see how he puts this all together so marvelously. It's also very thorough and, and, it, and understandable in, in its instruction uh, from the scriptures concerning Christians and lawsuits. And we don't have to sit around and scratch our head and wonder what the passage means, okay? I mean, it's pretty easy to, uh, to discern where it's going. Now, As we think about this next section, it's understandable uh, for the thought to occur with the Corinthian church and in the modern church uh, when we read Paul's statement of verse 7, when he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And when you read that, of course, and when the the early church read that, the Corinthian church read that, that, uh, this thought could occur. How can someone do that? They wronged me. They took what didn't belong to them. It's so contrary to the human idea of right and wrong. I mean, you defrauded me. It's so foreign to our infatuation with material things, too. I mean, I deserve this, and this will help my life be better, and the Lord wants me to be happy and and have what I need. And so, you know, how can I be wronged? How can I be defrauded? And so what Paul's going to do here, and I just foreshadow this just a little bit, is place this bar of forgiveness very high, okay? Uh, He is going to remind them of the debt that they owed and what it cost. And this conclusion to Paul's admonition concerning testimony and lawsuit and conflict resolution is going to be a very rich study for us here at the very end. Paul needs to see an attitude change. He needs to see a cloud of deceit lifted from around their hearts. And he's going to use the magnanimity of of God to do it. And he's going to take this church and our church right back to the cross. Now look at verse 9, if you would. And we'll read all the way to the end. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, 
Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's just stop right there. I was going to read to the end. Let's pause right there. Now, as we look at the section, I think it's important to tie it to Paul's previous statement in verse 7, just like we just did, okay? Because that's the key to understanding the next three verses. When Paul says, actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That's the issue. Okay, and that's what these next three verses are going to deal with. And so we tie them together in that context. And the question is, how can somebody do that? And it's found in the principle of forgiveness. It's found in the principle of forgiveness. Forgiveness, which is a key issue in all of Christian conduct. Forgiveness that overcomes our misguided idea of right and wrong. Forgiveness that overcomes our obsession with material things. Forgiveness, that kind of forgiveness, really springs from salvation, which turns on the light of how much we've been forgiven by God. That's the issue. And that's where he wants to take the Corinthian church back. He wants to say, listen, we need to press the reset button. We need to get back to what you realized you'd been forgiven of. We need to help you remember that, okay? Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, this is a great illustration. Verse 32 is one that in our family, we had our sons memorize, okay? And they can they can sing song it like a, a kid does when he doesn't want to memorize it, you know, does. Be kind one to another, turn hard, that kind of thing, okay? So that was something we had to do because we have four boys, and, and they were all angels to each other all the time. And so uh, anyway, verse 31 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, Paul starts there. Now that command by itself is difficult, isn't it? This is how our world responds, with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, okay? And it's how many Christians respond. This is first response, okay? Bitterness, somebody does something against me, I hang on to it and I get bitter and that root of bitterness grows. And wrath, and so I express myself to myself in my righteous anger. And then anger, expressing it outwardly in words and deeds. And clamor, which then just expands it out even more into action. And then slander, talking to someone else about what somebody did to you. Okay, so all these things. This is how the world responds. This is how many Christians respond. But now, okay, that's a hard, that's a hard command. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So intent to get even be put away. Okay, but now compound it with the next command. Okay, here it is, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Okay? Now, there's one of the one another's of Scripture, and we talked about those uh, this morning in the Be the Church class. Part of being the church is doing the one another's of Scripture. And when you see one another, you recognize that that's your job, whatever it is. Okay? Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, you know, exhort one another, reprove one another, uh, pray for one another. Here, be kind to one another. So we have this very difficult command, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you with all malice and compound it with an equally difficult uh, command, be ye kind. So exchange those other things with this, be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Now here's the bar, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And that's going to be Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 6. That's the new way to conduct yourself, Paul says, instead of Instead of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgive each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And it is possible uh, to do it as a saved person. It's impossible apart from salvation. 
But if you're redeemed, then you must conduct yourself in this way. It is the principle of forgiveness at work. And it sets the conduct bar at the height of God's forgiveness for you. You see? And Paul's going to pull on that principle as he moves into these last three verses. Why not better be wronged? Why not better be defrauded? You do it because you have been forgiven for way more, and that's the standard. Catch this. The overall span of that principle can only be measured by understanding how much God has forgiven you. And the more you understand how much God has forgiven you, the easier it is to replace bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. You see? That standard that God has forgiven you becomes the standard by which we forgive one another. Same principle at work as we illustrate it in Colossians 3.12. Okay? Here it is. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. So who's that? Who's the audience? Believers. Those who have a relationship with Christ. Okay? Now, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and and beloved. That's every believer. That's not some certain standard of believer, some saintly kind of believer who has got a hold on their, on their our personal problems. This is everybody, okay? Everybody. Here it is. Put on a heart of compassion, <coughs> kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So put those things on. Now that's your job, and God's commands are for us and not for him, right? God's commands are for us, not for him. God, help me be more patient. Well, how about this? How about in the power of the Holy Spirit, you not say that choice thing you'd like to say to your wife next time she disappoints you. Or wives, maybe you should hold the tongue back and let your husband do the, the uh, honeydew list at his own pace. Okay? Or whatever. Okay? And I make jokes about the application, but there's lots of application. Okay? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13. Bearing with one another, now that means when it's difficult, okay? It's easy to bear with one another when everything's going well between you and, and, and them. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So being long-suffering, that's what it is. In other words, you just bear with an irritating personality. You just bear with an irritating person. You just bear with a person who's perfected the art of irritating other people, okay? Because there's only two ways you're going to grow in life. Difficult circumstances... And what's the rest? Of, what's the other one, beloved? I say this all the time. Difficult people. Those two things help you grow closer to Christ. Well, here it's dealing with difficult people. Okay? Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. That's really broad territory, isn't it? That takes in a whole bunch of stuff. Even stuff you don't even realize yet. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. It just falls under it, whatever it is. It can be what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. It can be uh, somebody said something that wasn't nice to you. It could be somebody did something you didn't like. It, whatever it is, somebody required something of you you didn't want to give. Bear with one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, whatever the complaint comes from, however it springs up, whether it's unjust or just, mark this. Here's the, here's the, here's the bar. What is it? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You see? And that's the, that's the essence of Paul's admonition here in 1 Corinthians 6. The biblical standard says, do unto the others before they can do it to you. Right? No. Do unto the others as you would have them do to you, 
Really, that's not it either, is it? According to the last two verses we read, what's the biblical standard? Do unto others as Christ has done unto you. That's it, isn't it? I think we land right on the essence of, uh, of the point from Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, right on the essence of the point of Colossians 3, 12 through 13, right on the essence of the point of 1 Corinthians 6, right? Why not rather be defrauded? Verse 7. It's where Paul's going to go with this factious, immoral, prideful, greedy church in Corinth. And again, the overall span of that principle is measured by under, the understanding of how much God has forgiven you. Here's the questions you can ask. When you get ready to be impatient, when you get ready to have malice, when you get ready to have bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, and when you uh, don't want to be kind and you don't want to be tenderhearted and you don't want to forgive, and when you, um, although you've been chosen by God, you don't have compassion on those who are having a difficult time and there's no kindness and no humility and no gentleness and very little patience, Okay and you're not bearing with each other, and you're not forgiving each other, here's the question to ask. How much do I need to give? How do I need to respond? If it's due unto others as Christ has done unto you, here's the questions. How much compassion has he given me? Okay, let's just make it personal. You say it to yourself. How much compassion has he given me? How much kindness have I received from the Lord? Be real, okay? Don't let anybody distract you right now. This is super important. You want to get, and this escapes many, many believers. Okay? Because they've forgotten from where they've been. How much kindness, how much humility and gentleness and patience has the Lord extended to me? How much forbearing has he done on your behalf? What's that mean? How many times did he let you get away with being disobedient and did not immediately compensate you with punishment? How many times? There's the questions, okay? You want to get off your high horse and you want, to, you want to stop being bitter and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice and thinking that you're, you're justified in all those things? You want to get rid of that? This is basic to Christianity, and this is what Paul accuses them of and says, I say this to your shame. You didn't even know the fundamentals of Christianity, which is forgiveness. Instead, you're just taking everybody to court. How many complaints could he have voiced against you? Because that's Colossians, right? Whoever has a complaint against anyone... How many complaints could he have voiced against you but forgave? Because that's the other option, isn't it? You don't have to take every offense to somebody, do you? You have to chase down every single thing that somebody said or did or whatever or forgot to do. You could just forgive it. Love covers a multitude of sin, doesn't it? So how many complaints could he have voiced against you but forgave? Those are the questions, beloved, that I have to ask and you have to ask if you want to know what level the bar is set for forgiveness, for Paul to say, why not be defrauded? Why not just let the whole thing go? Just let him take it. God's still on his throne. He knows what you're owed. He knows who did it, right? He knew. And the realization of the magnanimous forgiveness of God on your behalf is the beginning of the foundation of the principle of forgiveness operating in your life. That's just the foundation. Okay, that's where you stand and you look around you and you see how big that foundation is laid with God's compassion and laid with God's kindness and laid with his humility and his gentleness and his patience and his forbearance and holding back complaint. That's what it's paved with. And you look around, you see that. And then you say, okay, then that's how I have to respond. See, John 13, 13, this will be the last illustration. We'll move on. 
It really confirms this idea of Christ as the model for all behavior. Listen to what he said as he's talking to his disciples. Verse 13, he says, you, verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. And obviously he's going to make a point. He's like, you're, you're giving me the right title. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm setting the standard for you. You're right to call me that. Now let's put it into practice. Verse 14, he says, If I then... The Lord and the teacher washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. There it is, right? The standard is, do unto others as Christ has done to you. And there he just says it. Verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So if you understand who I am, you understand what I did in my service to you, then do to you under, unto the other people as I've done to you. See, And of course it grows out much greater, doesn't it, as we think about the cross. It wasn't just a, a, only an issue of washing the feet of the disciples after they just got through having an argument over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom on the way there. I mean, how weird is that? I get to sit in his right side. No, I get to sit in his right side. No, you, no, you don't get to. I'm going to, you know. And then they get to the room, and Jesus girds himself. He takes a bowl of water and washes their dirty, filthy feet if they argued over who was going to rule. If you call me Lord, and you call me teacher, and you should because I am, then whatever I did to you, then you do to other people. And that becomes the standard, see? What kind of behavior does a believer have towards other believers? You treat each other as Christ treats you. That's the principle of interpersonal relationships among believers from which Paul draws the example for the church in Corinth. When he says, why not rather be wrong? Why not better be defrauded? He's drawing on this standard, the standard set by God, that he exercised towards us in Christ. See? The believer is to put on new virtues, says Paul. One of them is the virtue of forgiveness, and we are to forgive in the same measure, the same quality, the same sense as Christ forgave us. And so when it comes to uh, this issue in 1 Corinthians 6 or Ephesians 4 or Colossians 3, and we see the standard, we know even the smallest part of the reality of our own infraction against God, if we know just a little bit of our infraction, okay, then there's nothing, nothing, that anybody has ever done to you in any situation that is unforgivable. If you know even the fraction of a part of the compassion and the kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and holding back complaint that God has done for you, even a fraction of that, then there isn't anything that anybody's done to you in any situation that cannot be handled by forgiveness. And I don't think I'm overstating that. I think that really I'm understating it just by the limitations of my own mind and language. Because there's nothing that you've ever done in your life that is outside the forgiveness of God, and that's the standard, right? Is there anything you've ever done in your life outside the forgiveness of God? Answer, beloved. No. You are to forgive one another then, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And when you come to Christ and believe in him and receive Christ Jesus as your Savior, is there any sin at that point that's unforgivable? No. If you were a soldier who pounded the nail of, into the hand of Christ or put the spear in his side or you mocked him or you spit on him and you come to the cross and repent and ask for forgiveness, do you receive it? You receive it. 
And this becomes your promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No matter what the sin debt was, no matter how much compassion had to be given, how much kindness, how much humility, how much gentleness, how much patience, how much forbearance on your part, is there anything then that stands to condemn you? No. And that's a very high standard, and you have to use that standard to deal with other believers. And you may say, but you don't know what they did to me. And I think you know the answer to that. It doesn't matter, does it? In other words, quite frankly, I think we're so good at over-evaluating our own goodness and under-evaluating our own wickedness, you don't really know all of your offenses towards God, and yet he forgave you, and that's the standard, okay? Listen to this again, okay? We are so good at over-evaluating our own goodness and under-evaluating our own wickedness, we don't even know our offenses towards God, do we? Be honest. And yet he forgave you, and that's the standard. But the standard typically is my own evaluation of myself and my ability to somehow comprehend spiritual things. And that becomes the standard by which I can evaluate someone else. And yet, that's not the standard at all. You're out of the equation. The only part that you're in is your realization of how offensive you were to God and how much he forgave and continues to forgive, see? Now, with that context, okay, we can rate, we're just going to blow through this passage because that's it, okay? That's the essence of it. And Paul's going to list some sins that are typical of the life of the unredeemed, those who are not inheriting a kingdom, and it just becomes an example. It's not an exhaustive list. It is a list, though. And when he says, such were some of you, he draws the point home, doesn't he? You become looking around on that foundation. You see all the compassion and kindness and forgiveness and forbearance that all occurred as a result that such were some of us. See, So look at verse 9, if you would. <coughs> or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Just pause right there. In other words, don't you realize that you're different from the world? Why are you playing it their way? See? Why are you working according to their rules? Don't you realize you are the sons of the kingdom and you're going to rule with Christ? You're acting like the world, Paul says, and they don't get a kingdom and they don't have the capability that you have. You are two completely different groups. How could those who are not even in the kingdom judge the subjects of the kingdom? They couldn't. They can't. So Paul says, why are you doing life like they are instead of accepting wrongs and letting God bring justice, which as we saw is even better than bringing it to some in the church and letting them decide between you. You certainly could do that. But Paul says a, a more uh, equitable standard in comparison to what Christ has done for you is just be wronged. So why are you behaving like those who aren't in the kingdom when you are? And that's why Paul says this next thing he says in the middle part of verse 9, verse 10. He says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Look there in your copy of God's word. Don't be deceived. In other words, don't think your salvation and your lifestyle are two different things. That's why he doesn't want them to be deceived. Your salvation and your lifestyle are not two different things. They're joined. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The kind of activities that the world does have no place with you. You're separated from your old relationship with the world. Got it? 
Don't think your salvation and your lifestyle are two different things. They're not. They're connected by the forgiveness of God who put all things away and holds no condemnation against you. So Paul points this out just to say that the way they treat each other is more characteristic of the godless people who don't have a kingdom or a hope than the new creation they're supposed to be. That's the essence of that. Don't be deceived. Listen, the way you're acting, he says to them, is more characteristic of the godless people who don't have a kingdom or a hope than the new creation they're supposed to be. Paul says you're supposed to be changed. You've been delivered from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians says. Now Paul uses some words to describe the actions of the unredeemed. And we know that he's speaking about the unsaved because in verse 11 he says, such were some of you. So obviously they've been changed. But he's speaking of the unredeemed. Now starting in verse 9, Paul gives a list to the lifestyles of the world. Uh, the pattern of living of the unredeemed. That's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list. And it's important. So let's go through them. We'll go through them quickly. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. And that's a general term for being sexually immoral. It has a specific meaning, of course. It talks about being unfaithful before you're married, involved in a sexual relationship of any kind. Before you're married, Paul says, that's the pattern of the world. Don't do that. But here it's just a general term. And he, he, issue, he's, he sets it as number one. Typically, Paul does that because that's the number one thing that marks the world's lifestyle, isn't it? Just being immoral, however it applies. It may be sensuality. It may be immoral uh, thought life. It, it, all those kinds of things. It just lands at the top of the list, typically, with Paul because it describes the pattern of the world. Nor idolaters. That's second on the list, worshiping false gods, the practice of false religion. That would be Islam and Allah or Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism or Scientology or, or whatever. You just go ahead and list them all off, and they just... They're just growing at a rapid rate, and that identifies with the pattern of the world. Nor adulterers, and that's specifically unfaithfulness in marriage, so unfaithfulness with someone who's not a marriage partner, nor effeminate, and that is, and if there's anything that's dominating the news today, it's this. It's the exchange of male role for the female role. It could be as simple as dressing like a female, which Deuteronomy 22.5 strictly forbids, or... Uh, it could be uh, physiological changes or surgical anatomical changes. Uh, certainly, it, it takes all of that in. It marks the life pattern of the unredeemed. And in light of the headlines this issue has received lately, we don't really need to say anymore. We understand how it works. Nor homosexuals certainly marks the path of the unredeemed world, doesn't it? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, just in case you hear people say, well, it's only Paul that talks about homosexuals. Well, there's a whole bunch of Old Testament books that do too, and, and Peter then brings it in. Um, it tells us, though, that Sodom was destroyed for the sin that took the name of the city as an example to all who make this sin the pattern of their lives. Okay? So just be clear, I mean, Paul's pretty specific here, and Peter was too, that sin uh, took the name of the city. And by the writing of 1 Corinthians, this sin was so widespread as to defy belief. Much of those who ruled over Rome, uh, many who those who ruled over Rome, uh, most I should say, uh, especially in the early days, were all had this as a pattern of their life. It's a pattern of living of their former lives, those who don't inherit the kingdom. It is um, in leadership in our mainline Protestant churches now. Ireland thinks it's pretty great. It's the definition of it's before our Supreme Court where the our ruling is supposed to come out in June. So um, it's the pattern, it marks the pattern of behavior for the unredeemed. Nor thieves, kleptase, an embezzler, a pilferer, a thief. And I think um, these next three, this one and the covetous and then uh, uh, the next one, uh, is going to be really ones that Paul's kind of pulling out here, I think, that they can identify exactly what's going on inside the church, see, 
when they're taking the lawsuits and they're asking for more than they deserve or they want to they take somebody in, and pound them. Um, the covetous, pleoectase, it's actually a compound word, to have more, to want more. That attitude really marks the life of the unredeemed. Paul says you're not supposed to be that way. It's translated as greedy numerous times in the scripture. And this one, kleptase, and along with swindler that's next, those are very intentional by Paul, I think, because it points out where some of the church were playing by the world's rules, uh, people demanding more and more and requiring more and more, uh, stealing from each other uh, before the secular courts. Uh, nor drunkards, those who use alcohol, alter their behavior uh, with alcohol, uh, literal translation, to be well drunk is how it works. In other words, you just you drink regularly and it does alter you from time to time or all the time. That's the pattern of life for those who are unredeemed. Don't be like that, Paul says. Nor revilers, loidoros, those who speak mischief, particularly of slanderers. It's used, it's, it's uh, uh, translated as slanderers. It's generally refers to as a troublemaker, someone who talks behind someone's back. Nor swindlers, that's someone who exhorts, uh, extorts or robs someone else. All these things are categories in which the world is defined uh, by the word of God. Uh, we have a, a world full of these people. It certainly could describe the culture in which we live now. And they all fit one category. Uh, no one with a pattern of life like this, it says, will inherit the kingdom of God. So your pattern of life is this, you don't inherit. And then Paul says, verse 11, look there if you would, such were some of you. And as you think about that, then you have to realize that this Corinthian church was made up of a whole lot of those people. They were immoral, they were idolaters, they were adulterers. Effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. And guess what? Berean is a church full of people who are and who were immoral, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunks, revilers, swindlers, and other things because that's not an exhaustive list. And here's the thing, beloved. We probably shouldn't forget that or else we'll forget how we got here and why we're here, right? We'd like to forget that. In fact, that's the first step towards self-righteousness, isn't it? And then we hear Paul say, and such were some of you. I mean, you, you don't need to stand up and tell which we were involved with or which combination, but it certainly identifies with Berean, just like it identified with Corinth, and every other evangelical church that gives the gospel out and is made up of a wide variety of people with way different backgrounds, just the same. It's nothing to be ashamed of, is it? The only thing to be ashamed of was if we stayed in our sin. Now we get to rejoice because the Lord has borne all of it to the cross. And you, when you remember that, see, and what you've been saved from and out of, then you have the motivation to do the otherwise undoable, when it comes down to demanding your rights and going after everyone who does you wrong, instead, why not be wronged and why not be defrauded? See? It becomes easier to absorb then, doesn't it? When we remember how big the platform is we stand on, of how much compassion and forgiveness and forbearance and all the things the Lord gave to us. See? And that's Paul's point. The passage isn't saying that if a believer does any of those things, he ceases to be a believer. No. Okay? In fact... The fact that you may find yourself being like the world from time to time should remind you of the grace of God and salvation and the magnanimous forgiveness given through Christ on your behalf as you seek forgiveness from him on a daily basis. And so it still works exactly the same way. See? Now look at verse 11. In spite of your past and sometimes your present, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified. Three very important words. You used to be covetous, drunk, slanderers, swindlers, homosexuals, effeminate, adulterers, idolaters, immoral thieves, but you were washed. Washed from the filth of your own sin. Titus 3.5 calls it the washing of regeneration. It means you've been made new. You've been remade. That's the point. You've been remade. You used to be those things, but now you're washed. It's the John 3.3, 3, except a man be born again. It's that. It's the born again part. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And Ephesians 2.4 says, but when God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, mark this, made us alive together with Christ. That's it. That's an essential change. You used to be immoral, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunks, slanderers, swindlers, but now you're justified. That's declared right with God. Your standing has been changed before God. You used to be guilty. You used to be condemned. You used to be under a curse. You used to be awaiting punishment, a condemned criminal. At salvation, God justified you. That means he declared you righteous. He says you're no longer guilty. You're innocent. You're no longer worthy of punishment. You're free because you've received the righteousness of God on Christ's behalf as a free gift from him. You used to be those things, but now you're washed and now you're justified. And you used to be immoral, idolater, adulterer, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunks, slanders, and swindlers, but now you're sanctified. In other words, beloved, set apart as holy. Your capacity for behavior has changed. You have been set apart, positionally holy, and now you can live in a new pattern instead of the old sin pattern. Those three words are so, so important. The, the unbelievable generosity and grace of God offered in forgiveness is the standard by which, then, he appeals to the Corinthian believers. And it's that fantastic reality that Paul wants the church to remember. He wants them to come out of the fog of their own self-righteousness, their own self-centered delusion, and the human view of right and wrong, and what's owed, and their infatuation with material things, and catch a glimpse again of the true reality that they used to be in the world, and they used to be alive to the world, and dead to God, and they used to be guilty, and they used to be condemned to hell, hopelessly swallowed up in sin, but now they've been washed, and justified, and sanctified, and that transformation, how could that happen? Look at the end of verse 11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God has accepted you, he's washed you, justified you, sanctified you because of who Christ is, because of what Christ did, because of his willingness to go to the cross, because he bore our sin, because of his resurrection from the dead, and in the spirit of our God. Jesus accomplished all of that, in other words, and the spirit applied it to our life when we believed. Isn't that great? And that's exactly what Paul wants them to remember. You have to go backwards, he said. Listen, you're way up there thinking you're all self-righteous and everything, and you've forgotten all of this stuff. But such were some of you. And now you've been washed, and now you've been sanctified and justified. You've, all those things now are you and your reality. And there's this transformed life, and we could give witness, all of us, couldn't we, of what the Lord's done for us and does for us on a daily basis. And he, he's transformed us and continues that process of sanctification because of his magnanimous grace and his forgiveness. And you are still tempted, and you still sin from time to time, but the habitual pattern of evil in your life is no longer the norm. It's now being broken by acts of holiness produced by the Holy Spirit. 
The church isn't full of perfect people. The church is full of transformed sinners. That's what God offers to man. And what God's saying to man is, I'll take you, whether you're immoral, unfaithful in your marriage, unfaithful before marriage, effeminate, homosexual, robber, thief, murderer, if you want to be forgiven for all of that and a thousand other things like pride and slander and gossip and whatever that you do on a regular daily basis, I don't care what you are. And in Christ Jesus, I'll recreate you, I'll wash you, I'll justify you, I'll sanctify you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or because of what he's done by the power of the Spirit of our God. So Paul tells the church at Corinth, and every believer in every church since to us today, you're new creatures. And he says to the Corinthians, hey, you used to be like the rest of the world, but you're different. You've been transformed, so act like that. What you're doing now is inconsistent with who you are and what you're equipped to do in the future. It's inconsistent with the attitude of forgiveness that's supposed to mark you. And that's the way you got in. And it's out of that forgiveness, the forgiveness you received at a level far above anything you have to give out, then you can submit to why not rather be wronged and why not rather be defrauded. You can do that. And you can give kindness and you can exchange whatever complaint you have with one another. Why? Because the bar is way higher than that, that the Lord got over for you. Going to law courts, that's inconsistent with your relationship to this system. You're not in this system anymore. What are you doing that for, he says. Don't do that. Remember where you've come from. Remember who you are. Be consistent with what you're equipped to do and operate that way. Let's pray. Will you bow your head with me? <coughs> While your heads are bowed, please don't look around or, or talk to anybody just for a minute, if you would. As you're thinking about those things we just talked about, opening your heart to the Spirit of God. Just let me say this. We talked about a transformed life this morning. That's what Christ wants to do in the life of every individual that's here. Okay? You know that? And I know some of you here, and some of you perhaps fall into that category that Paul listed in the catalog of sin. You're defined there either in one of those things or more than one of those things. And you've never been washed, and you've never been justified, you've never been sanctified. You're not an inheritor of the kingdom of God, to be very frank. You desperately need a transformed life. You're living in the sin that characterizes the ungodly, and you need a change. And Christ this morning is offering you an absolute and total transformation. Recreate you and make you a new creature, a new life, a new standing before God, a new capacity for holy behavior. That's what God wants to do in your life today. He'll do it if you accept the sacrifice of Christ and allow the Spirit of God to do His work. You're going to have to admit that these things are true about you. If you desire this morning to be transformed, if you're sick of the life you live, and beloved, if you're not sick of it yet, Scripture says that that life is a season that is enjoyable, and then after that, no, it leads to sorrow, despair, greater wickedness, judgment from the Lord. So if you desire this morning to be transformed, if you're sick of that life you live, if you're tired of the patterns of your life, tired of being a part of the catalog that we've seen, and what you ought to do is just say, Lord Jesus, I desire your forgiveness. Right there where you sit. I'm sorry for what I've done. Please transform me. I want you to make me new. I want to be a new creation. I want the old things to pass away. I want everything to become new. Please save me from my sentence of death and make me alive this morning.
If that's what you really wanted, beloved, that's exactly what he did. And if you prayed that prayer today, please let me know that you did that by answering those questions on the response card that's right in front of you. Just when we close out, don't even move from your seat until you fill that out. Bring that up to me when you're done, when you leave, before you leave today. For those of you who are believers this morning, but you're recognizing maybe that um, you're living by the same old sin patterns, maybe it's unforgiveness, whatever it is, and you have to seek the Lord in that regard. You certainly don't want to be what you used to be when you can be what God has made you to be. Father, we do thank you today for giving us understanding into your word this morning and teaching us a very practical lesson in the process. Lord, we want to know what kind of behavior is pleasing in your sight, and then we want to do it, so please give us the wisdom for that. And, and Father, we thank you for those who are guests with us this morning and, and are enjoying the, and sharing the blessings of fellowship and the word. And even as we close, Lord, we, we ask you that your Holy Spirit would have free access to our hearts. If there's something in our lives that's not as it should be, some worry, some problem, some pain, some sense of lostness, whatever it may be, you'll draw us to yourself today. And for those who've never confessed Christ, who've never asked Jesus Christ to take over their life, we pray that this might be the day they do and know the resources that come from him as a result of that. For those who are believers, of course, but in disobedience, this may be the day of confession and renewed obedience. Thank you for speaking the truth through your word. Thank you for our time together, for sweet fellowship in Christ. Continue, Father, to impress on our hearts on a daily basis as we do church together here at Berean. This tremendous principle of forgiveness that we've talked about this morning. Help that principle to mark our lives and thereby give us a testimony to the world, what our God is like, and that we indeed are his children. We forgive as he forgave us. And Father, we pray that you'll transform some lives today as only you can do that. And those who've been transformed, Father, will live in the process, this principle of forgiveness to your own glory and the glory of your son Jesus in whose name we pray and all God's people said.